Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. And this is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. Uh, this is episode 60 of the podcast. And today we're talking about two cases from the U.S. Supreme Court on law enforcement use of force and on qualified immunity. Um, thanks for coming back to the podcast. We've had lots of great feedback about the podcast. Last episode, we talked about a new case on exigent circumstances. And as always, our podcast focuses on law. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in the Commonwealth of Virginia to better strengthen and serve your communities, whether you're a patrol officer, detective, uh, special agent with you know sheriff's department, police department, specialized agency, and so on. The cases that were decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, they both came down on October 18th, and they were both very short, what's called a per curiam opinion. And they're really interesting, I think, for two reasons. One, because they're per curiam opinions, which basically means they're unanimous opinions. Uh, judges don't even sign them. They are basically handed down as rulings from the court on an issue so obvious or so uncontroverted that they don't even feel the need to, you know, write concurring opinions or dissenting opinions or sign the opinion. They just write a very short, brief uh, opinion, almost like an order that disposes of the case. And so they both unanimously dismiss use of force lawsuits against law enforcement on qualified immunity grounds. These cases are interesting because of certainly the debate going on about qualified immunity, also because of the unanimity of these rulings. Uh, although also, I think, because they give us insight into what's happening at the lower court levels. And I want to talk a lot about what's happening in these cases, both in the Ninth Circuit and the Tenth Circuit, and how they sort of, uh, you know, we in the Fourth Circuit don't get a lot of view into those cases, but what's going on out West with regards to law enforcement use of force cases, uh, I think they show us that uh, the courts are, are letting a lot of cases go forward against law enforcement officers that might surprise us, that might think, but that use of force was clearly appropriate, you might say, if I described it to you. But the court says, no, I think this is an issue and I think a jury needs to hear this case. So we're going to talk today about two cases. The first case is a case called uh, Tahlequah versus Austin, and it's a case from the Tenth Circuit. And the other case is a case called Rivas Villegas versus Cortes Luna, and that is a case from the Ninth Circuit. Uh, the Tahlequah versus Austin case is a deadly force case involving officers who shoot a guy in a garage and kill him. And then uh, the case, Rivas Villegas, case from Ninth Circuit, is a non-deadly use of force case involving an officer who puts a knee in a guy's back, who's armed, the guy's armed with a weapon. Um, and so, uh, and that case uh, goes forward in the Ninth Circuit. So let's talk a little bit about what these cases are, and then I want to go into the background of what's going on in both of these circuits in both these cases. So the Tahlequah versus Austin case, this is a case from the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. And it is a, uh, the 10th Circuit, just so you know, the 10th Circuit is Colorado, Kansas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Utah, and Wyoming. So, uh, you know, not areas necessarily thought of, you know, 9th Circuit, obviously, everybody knows 9th Circuit's pretty liberal, right? But here, the 10th Circuit isn't necessarily considered to be, you know, a liberal bastion. But um, you're going to see when we talk about these case, this case and the ruling, uh, that that the, 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 the rulings in this jurisdiction are not particularly law enforcement friendly. So 
The case starts as officers respond to a call for service from a, a woman inside of her house. Her ex-husband has gone into her garage. He's intoxicated. He's refusing to leave. And she tells 911, if you don't get here soon, it's going to get ugly real quick. Uh, they show up. They talk to her. She said, or they talk to uh, the ex-husband who, again, is intoxicated. He's in the um, garage. And he's like, look, I don't want to go to jail. And they say, we don't want you to go to jail either. We just want you to get a ride and get out of here. He clearly has something in his hands. They can't see what it is. He's fidgeting. They don't know what it is. Um, they ask her to pat him down. He says no. And then suddenly in the conversation, he turns around and he walks back towards the back of the garage where his tools were hanging. They say, hey, man, don't go back there. Stop. Come back here. He keeps walking. He grabs a hammer from the back wall from the workbench. He turns around. He faces the officers. He grasps the handle of the hammer with both hands like he's going to swing a baseball bat. And he pulls it up to the shoulder level and the officers back up. They draw their firearms. They yell, drop the hammer, drop the hammer. He doesn't drop it. Instead, he takes a step forward and a few steps to his right, coming out from behind a piece of furniture, putting him in an unobstructed path towards one of the officers, and then raises the hammer behind his head and takes a stance as if he's about to throw the hammer or charge the police officers. And at that point, two of the officers shoot and kill uh, this, uh, the ex-husband or the husband, uh, ex-husband or husband, I can't remember, ex-husband. So he sues the law enforcement officers, and it goes to the district court level. And the district court grants summary judgment to the officers and says, you know, the officer's use of force is reasonable here. And even if it wasn't, even if it weren't, qualified immunity prevented the case from going forward. But it goes to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, and they reverse. They say this case should go to trial. The Tenth Circuit criticizes the officers here because they find that the officers, by walking towards the, the plaintiff, the ex-husband, and cornering him in the back of the garage, they view the officers as recklessly creating a situation that leads to the fatal shooting, such that the ultimate use of deadly force was unconstitutional. So when they make this ruling, the Tenth Circuit is looking at clearly established law in the Tenth Circuit. So let's pause for a minute. I think it's worthwhile for us to kind of pause for a second and say, well, what's going on in the Tenth Circuit? We don't, you know, we don't operate in there. The Tenth Circuit rulings don't bind us in Virginia. But, you know, what was happening at the time in the Tenth Circuit regarding law for officers, especially regarding this idea that they somehow, the officers somehow created the, recklessly created the standoff by confronting him? Well, they have these cases in the Tenth Circuit that they've decided in the past. One of the cases is called... Um, Sabayos versus the Sabayos versus the um, versus Husk, and then one is Hastings versus Barnes, and another case is a case called Allen, and these are all Tenth Circuit cases, but I want to talk about the facts of them because it's interesting. So in the Sabayos case, the officers respond to again a call from a woman, a wife, saying that her husband is in the driveway of her house, so just very similar. He's got a baseball bat, he's acting crazy, um, he's, uh, he's got two baseball bats, he's drunk, uh, they get other calls from other people indicating he's intoxicated, he's armed. So the officers show up, they uh, get out of their cars, they walk up, they you know obviously draw their firearms. Um, he appears to be certainly intoxicated either on alcohol or on drugs. Um, and Another officer goes to get a beanbag shotgun. He never comes back. It doesn't ever come up, but there is somebody nearby who has a beanbag shotgun available. But in the meantime, these two officers, 
they're about a hundred yards away. They can see him. Um, they try to get close to him. They shot, shout to him to drop the bat. He goes into the garage. So again, very similar to our case, the Taleco case. He's going into the garage. He's got an object in his heart, in his hands, a deadly weapon in his hands. They're shouting commands to him. Weapons drawn. Drop the drop the bat. Drop the bat. Then he turn. He begins then to walk towards the officers. They're telling him drop the bat. He's saying fuck you or what motherfucker mf'er. Uh, drop it or you'll be shot. Uh, again, they order him to stop and drop the bat. He doesn't. And you know they're explaining, look, we don't want to back off because we're trying to contain him. He's in a garage. He's in a controlled area. If he gets out into the open, he can go frankly anywhere with his weapons. Um, so at this point, then this other officer is going to get the beanbag shotgun, but the distance is narrowing. Uh, one officer said that he can see also that the uh, suspect also then has a knife, a pocket knife in his hands. Um, when they, uh, when he gets to be, um, it's not really clear in the record how far away he is. One officer fires his taser, and right about the same time, the other officer fires a gun and shoots and kills Mr. Ceballos. So here, right, the court, again, is faced with uh, the question of, is the officer's use of force lawful? And the Tenth Circuit finds there's enough evidence to, to, to let the case go forward against the officers. They criticize the officers in this case for uh, cornering the cornering Ceballos in his garage, not backing off. They say by not backing off, by not giving him space, by not retreating essentially when he comes with his baseball bats, um, that they created this confrontation uh, that results in them shooting Ceballos. And they make reference to another case that they had decided called uh, Allen uh, versus Muskogee. And Allen was a 1997 case where um, off, where Mr. Allen um, had left his home, he had ammunition, he had guns, he was armed, he'd threatened family members, there was a warrant for his arrest, um, although it was from about 11 years uh, before. Um, he parks his, he drives to his sister's house, he parks out front, um, the sister says, hey look, Allen's going to kill himself, officers show up, and when they look, investigate to see who's in the car, if there's anybody in the car, they can find Allen, he's there. Allen has one foot out of the vehicle, he's got a gun in his right hand, Um the officers immediately try to get everybody cleared. There's a bunch of bystanders. Get everybody to get back, get back. Another officer shows up at the driver's side door, and one of the officers decides to try to reach and grab the gun. They try to grab the gun. Um, they're not. The officer is not able to do so. Then another officer tries to open the passenger side door to get to the gun. At that point, Allen reach, uh, reaches out. He points the gun towards one of the officers. The officer ducks away. Then, the, then Allen swings the gun around towards another two officers. And at that point, when he swings the gun around to point it to other officers, the officers shoot and kill Allen. And in that case, again, the Tenth Circuit found that the case should go to trial, that the use of force was not uh, clearly lawful. The court questioned the use of force here and said... Um, the reasonableness of the actions depends not just on whether they were in danger at the time, but also, and what they describe here as their reckless or deliberate conduct during the seizure, which unreasonably created the need to use such force. And so <clears throat> they consider in the Tenth Circuit whether an officer's conduct prior to the suspect's threatened use of force is immediately connected to the suspect's use threat of force. So again, they let that lawsuit go forward.
And uh, another case from the tenth from the tenth circuit also was a case Hastings, um, where again officers um, confront a guy inside of his house. Um, he is mentally unstable. There's a concern that he may be trying to hurt himself. They go to the house. They knock on the door. They talk to him. Um, they uh, he's really nervous. He's so they go inside again. They go. They're talking to him. Uh, they're inside the house. While they're inside the house, he goes and grabs a sword. He grabs a knife. Uh, officers immediately draw drop weapons and say, "Hey, man, you got to drop the sword. Drop the knife." Um, he refuses to do so. He's about eight to twelve feet away from the officers. Um, they were very concerned he was going to stab them. Um, he's holding the sword. They're telling him to put it down. It's, 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 it is, as they describe it, a defensive manner. Although, I mean, a defensive manner with a sword is you still, you know, can cut somebody pretty easily from six to 12 feet. It's a matter of, you know, a second or so before you cut somebody. Um, he lowers the sword at one point, gets the phone. He's talking to the phone. It's hard to hear what he's saying, but he's saying something like, help me, or they're trying to get me. Officers try to pepper spray him. And uh, it's a small space. Obviously, it's a confined space. It's indoors. Um, it doesn't have an effect on him. But at that point, having been pepper sprayed, he then turns the sword on the officers and begins walking towards them. The officers can't retreat because they're trapped in this bedroom and they shoot and, and kill this guy. Um, his name is Todd. The case is called Hastings. They shoot this guy and again, kill him. The court says here again, these officers essentially recklessly created this situation in the eyes of the court and the matter should go to trial that the officers bear responsibility. The reasonableness is not just, is it objectively reasonable based on the facts that, that confront them, um, but also whether or not their own conduct unreasonably created the need to use such force. Now, I focus on this, you know, this, this fact that, that in the 10th Circuit, they have this rule that says, we're going to focus not just on whether or not the use of force itself was proper, but whether or not the officers uh, recklessly or unreasonably created the need to use the force. Because Virginia, when they enacted their deadly force statute in the last General Assembly session in 2020, added that as a factor in the analysis about whether or not the use of force is proper under Virginia law, right? So remember, they had these five factors that they included that you would consider, like whether the suspect has an object that is a weapon or appears to be a weapon, uh, the seriousness of the expected crime, the amount of time an officer is available, whether the officer engaged in de-escalation measures, right? These are all factors. But one of the factors was whether or not conduct of the officers intentionally increased the risk of a deadly confrontation. So even though this factor that the 10th Circuit thinks is important and is taken into account and is causing these officers to face liability for a situation where, you know, like in Allen, a guy's pointing a gun at them um, and, 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 the, and they try to get the gun away and it doesn't work and he, he points a gun at more officers, right? And the court says, no, that case should go to trial. Or in Ceballos, where the guy's got a baseball bat and a knife and he's walking towards the officers, they're telling him to drop the knife, right? and he's saying, F you, I'm not dropping it. And again, the court says the officers created that situation. Or in, uh, in Hastings, where the uh, court again here says um, that by going into this guy's house and pepper spraying him, the officers recklessly or unreasonably created the need to use deadly force uh, where they were trapped in this room with him. Bring, you know, clearly with this sword at this point, he's turned and attacking them in a room they have no escape from. The officers 
in the eyes of the court, created that response, created that situation themselves, and therefore their use of force was not lawful in the eyes of the court, or potentially not lawful. It was up to a jury to decide whether that was lawful. So that's the background in the Tenth Circuit when the court decides in this Talequa case that when facing the plaintiff, when facing the ex-husband in the garage wielding this hammer, that the officer's uh, use of deadly force in the eyes of the court was not proper because, again, in the eyes of the court, a jury should decide whether it was proper uh, that they, when they are facing him, he's getting ready to hit them with his hammer, which is obviously a deadly weapon, uh, and they were going to let that case go to trial. It reaches the U.S. Supreme Court, and in this per curiam opinion, and again, per curiam, this is a opinion where the court feels this is such an obvious issue. We don't need to have a, a big argument about it. We don't need to have dissenting opinions and concurring opinions and so on. This is clear. This is obvious. We're just going to rule on this right here and issue an opinion right now and and do so without even really oral argument, at least sometimes. And so in this case, they reverse the ruling of the Tenth Circuit. They dismiss the lawsuit and write neither the panel majority nor the respondent have identified a single precedent, and they're talking about their own precedent, finding a Fourth Amendment violation under similar circumstances, the officers were entitled to qualified immunity. And the court repeated here, it's not enough that a rule be suggested by existing precedent. It has to be so clear to a reasonable officer that his conduct is unlawful, that the, uh, that the case, that, that, that the use of force must be clearly improper. And so in this case, they look at the they look at the Ceballos case, they look at the Allen case. They don't even think that the Allen case and the Ceballos case are very similar to this case. They don't think they control. They don't criticize specifically the rulings in Allen and Ceballos. Now, it would be unusual for them to do that, um, but here they just simply say Ceballos and Allen, and in the Hastings case, uh, were all distinguishable. They were different than this particular case, and so they dismiss it. Um, and what they don't do here is go through and and really analyze or criticize or overrule the Tenth Circuit's overall approach, though. So they here they simply say what the officers did wasn't clearly wrong, and because it's not clearly wrong and it, could, it wouldn't be obvious to any officer that what they were doing was unlawful by defending themselves against a guy with a hammer who was about to bash their heads in, uh, then the case must be dismissed. Which then takes us to uh, the second case from the Supreme Court, and that's a case from Union City, California. And again, it's a Ninth Circuit case, and again, we have a per curiam ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court. And so this case, Rivas Villegas versus Cortes Luna, what's that case about? Well, what happens is, again, it's a 911 call, family violence case, uh, father of children. Here, it's the child who calls 911. The child is crying, reporting that she, her young sister, and her mother are barricaded in a room. That outside is the plaintiff, the father, the mother's boyfriend who's going to try to hurt them. Uh, he is intoxicated. He's using a chainsaw to break into the house, according to the call. The family is trapped inside. They have no way of escaping. Again, the officers respond. Again, they command the defendant to come out of the house, come on the ground. He comes out. He drops. He has some metal tool in his hand, and he drops that tool. We never see a chainsaw, but he had something in his hand, pry bar, something like that, and he drops that on the ground. Now, at this point, officers now have him at gunpoint. He is complying, but the officers can see that he has a knife in his left pocket. So the officers command him to keep his hands up, 
And nevertheless, the plaintiff then starts dropping his uh, hands and dropping his head down in contravention of the orders. This is making them concerned. So one of the officers has a beanbag gun nearby. He hits him twice with the beanbag rounds. And at that point, the plaintiff complies and goes to the ground on his own. So he's not knocked to the ground, but he does go to the ground. So at this point now, he's on the ground. Officers run up, and they're going to get the knife out of his pocket and handcuff him. In the process of doing so, one of the officers, for about eight seconds, puts his knee on the left side of the plaintiff's back, right near where the plaintiff had the knife in his pocket. Then they take his hands, they put him behind his back, they put him in handcuffs, and then uh, after about eight seconds, the officer gets off of his uh, back. The plaintiff claims he's badly injured from this, and he sues the officers, saying that the officers use excessive force by leaning on his back with his knee. Again, the district court says seems to be appropriate use of force. There's nothing clearly stating that it's not. And there was nothing here that says to a reasonable officer, your use of force would be improper in this situation. And so they dismiss the case. But the plaintiff appeals to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And in a two-to-one ruling, the panel, the Ninth Circuit panel, reverses the convic- reverses the dismissal and says the officer was not entitled to qualified immunity because existing precedent, existing law in the Ninth Circuit Uh, put him on notice that his conduct constituted excessive force. So, again, interesting, you know, decision here on the part of the Ninth Circuit, and it tells us a little bit about what's going on in the Ninth Circuit. But So, before we talk about what the um, U.S. Supreme Court rules here, uh, again, the Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit makes a reference to their own rulings, cases like there's a case called Lalonde versus County of Riverside, Um, and these are cases where, again, you have suspects who are lying face down on the ground, who are not physically or verbally resisting at the time. And an officer then leans on one of the person's, you know, one of these people's backs, causing some kind of uh, injury. In these situations, the court says in the Ninth Circuit that that's an excessive use of force and allows the lawsuits to go forward. Well, again, here, the U.S. Supreme Court dismisses the lawsuit, reverses that ruling and dismisses the lawsuit, and repeats this formulation that qualified immunity attaches when an official's conduct does not violate clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. And so they analyze these other rulings in the Ninth Circuit, and of course there's a lot because the Ninth Circuit's huge, but they say, you know, all these other rulings from the Ninth Circuit, they're all distinguishable from this case And at no point would it be clear to an officer uh, who was in these facts that he couldn't put his knee on the back of a violent suspect who was trying to break into a house and hurt people, uh, who had a knife and who had refused to comply with the orders earlier to keep his hands away from the knife, um, to disarm him by putting his knee on the suspect's um, uh, back to keep him from getting to the knife for a period of eight seconds, right? The court specifically said he's got the knife protruding from his left pocket. He had just appeared to reach for it. The officer only put his knee on his back for eight seconds and only on the side of his back near where the knife was, the officers are retreating or retrieving rather, getting the knife out. As soon as they get the knife out from him, then at that point he removes his knee and um, they move on with the arrest. So, you know, What's going on in these cases here? What's going on with the court's ruling in both of these cases? 
in neither case does the court come out and say something clear like the use of force here was clearly reasonable. And that could be, you know, the court has done that before in previous cases, right? There is cases um, where the court has considered whether or not it was proper to use deadly force, for example, in a case called Scott versus Harris in, in, in hitting somebody who was driving 120 miles an hour down the road and who uh, was endangering other drivers in the road. Or um, Plumhoff versus Rickard, a case where a guy's driving a car and tries to crash into police officers, uh, trying to run over police officers, and ultimately officers end up shooting him again. The court looks at these uses of force and, and does express some judgment about whether or not the use of deadly force is or non-deadly force in the in the Ninth Circuit case is um, is lawful. Here, the court doesn't express an opinion about whether or not the use of deadly force and non-deadly force is reasonable, is appropriate in these circumstances. Instead, the court simply analyzes qualified immunity and simply says, "Would it be clear to any reasonable officer who responded here that their uh, that their actions would?" be unlawful and if it's not clear to any reasonable officer responding to these responding to these facts that their actions would be unlawful then the case would be dismissed and that's really what qualified immunity is all about right so now these cases don't go to trial and a case a jury doesn't decide whether or not these actions were reasonable so the issue then is you know how specific does it have to be for you to know that the activity that the action you're about to take is unlawful, right? So let's go back and look at the uh, the ruling in Rivas Viegas, right? In Rivas Viegas, that's the case where the guy's uh, threatening to break into his children's house. The children inside, they're scared, they're terrified, they're on 911. They said he's outside, he's intoxicated. They show up. He's got this pry bar or some metal object in his arm, his hand. He drops it, but then they tell him to keep his hands up, and he doesn't. He's reaching down, and he's got a knife on him, and they put him on the ground. The Ninth Circuit says, you know, this is like our Lalonde case where officers respond to a neighbor's complaint, a noise complaint. They show up. Uh, there's Lalonde. He's in his underwear. He's in a T-shirt. He's got a sandwich in his hand. Officers just enter his house to arrest him for obstruction of justice um, because he's not cooperating with them. They grab him by his ponytail. They knock him to the ground. They spray him with pepper spray. And then while handcuffing him, dig his knee, dig their knee into his back. And the court says, you know, that's really nothing like this case here in Rivas Villegas. In Rivas Villegas, right, he's got uh, he's got a knife, he's outside, he's not complying with orders, he's already threatened other people, he's threatened to hurt other people. Um, and Lalonde had no weapon and hadn't made any threats and hadn't tried to hurt anybody. So that was a very different kind of case, right? So clearly there, I think we can agree, how would any reasonable officer, even if they knew what Lalonde, the facts were and so on, be able to say, oh, because in Lalonde, officers who go into a guy's house and throw him on the ground and pepper spray him up with their knee on his back, because of that, I can't put my knee on somebody's back to disarm them from a knife when they've tried to hurt or stab or hurt kill somebody. So that case, I think it's pretty obvious, right? When you go back to the Oklahoma case, the city of Tahlequah versus Austin case, the case where the ex-husband in the garage grabs the hammer and tries to bash in the officer's heads with this hammer and gets shot and killed, there, you know, the Tenth Circuit had repeatedly ruled in similar cases when, you know, for example, um, the case that I mentioned, the Ceballos case, they go to a guy's garage and he's got a baseball bat and he's again threatening 
the ex-wife inside the house and he's drunk and intoxicated and refusing to drop the bat and he's coming towards the officers and they're telling him drop the drop the bat drop the bat and he's got it also maybe a knife in his left hand they think too and he's you know saying f you and all these things and he's walking towards the officers and at some point the officers shoot and kill him that's pretty similar it seems pretty similar to the uh, to the Talequa case, the guy with the with the, uh, the ex-husband with the hammer. Um, but the court says, no, no, a reasonable officer uh, would still not be put on notice that, you know, a guy coming six to ten feet away uh, with a hammer is anything like the, the previous facts. And so they still find that the case is, um, uh, is not similar enough. Now, the other thing, too, is I should tell you about Ceballos, and this is actually pretty important. The Ceballos case was decided after the Tahlequah case. So, uh, as you know, again, from the court's perspective, it doesn't really put anybody on notice because Ceballos happens after uh, the Tahlequah case. So it really it couldn't put an officer on notice anyway. But you can see, you know, the Tenth Circuit's view of holding officers responsible in their view for creating these situations. Um, so we're not in the Tenth Circuit. The Tenth Circuit doesn't control. But I think I still think it's important that we be aware of what the Tenth Circuit views things as because that rule now exists in Virginia under state law. And so the takeaway from these two cases today certainly is the U.S. Supreme Court is still very much standing by qualified immunity. Obviously, Congress could eliminate it tomorrow by writing it into the statute that qualified immunity is not a defense anymore for police or for anybody because, again, qualified immunity is a defense for anybody, for cabinet officials and bus drivers and school superintendents and Everybody, it's, it's qualified immunity exists for all government actors, and Congress could eliminate it just for police or could eliminate it for everybody, including cabinet officials and school superintendents and bus drivers and so on. But the other takeaway, I think, for today is to get a little insight into what's happening in another, another jurisdiction somewhere else with this idea of officer-created danger and how it's applied in that jurisdiction because the, that theory, that reasoning very much, I think, could be applied in Virginia in the future under the new law that was passed uh, last year in the, by the General Assembly. So some things to think about today, uh, some interesting cases. But other than that, that's what we got for today. That's all for the podcast. Um, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on uh, Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher. We're on SoundCloud. Uh, if you have another app you want me to be on, let me know, and I'll jump on that app too. Uh, if you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. But other than that, for today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.